From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. And so I just decided to be honest about that, right? To say, like, when I acted terribly, I'm going to show you too. And that's terrifying, right? To be like, somebody's going to pick this up and be like, wow, Kelly, okay. Like, she's a hot mess, right? Like, ooh, I didn't know. And sure, right? Legit. (laughs) So I just think there needs to be that kind of level of honesty there about, like, if we're going to talk about other people's flaws, then we need to be willing to talk about our own too. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we are delighted to welcome back to the show Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's the Indie Award-winning author of Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia, and The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of the Zombie Apocalypse in American Culture, among many other books. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Rumpus, The Washington Post, and more. Until recently, she was the editor of Women in Higher Education and the National Teaching and Learning Forum. Longtime listeners will remember that we have spoken to her on the show before, both about her book Sexism Ed and her book The Gospel According to the Klan. Today we're talking about her recent book Final Girl and other essays on grief, trauma, and mental illness. Kelly J. Baker, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm very excited to be able to have this conversation with you. Well, Folks that listen to me talk about the books that I read know that I occasionally say that I read books very quickly, both because I'm a professor and I am also preparing for a radio show every week. And so I pick up books and I like just go through them and rip them apart and get what I need out of them. When I started reading your book, Final Girl, I did it very differently. It is a book that as soon as I got into the first few pages, I said, I need to read this book slow. And I did that not just because of the material, but also as a gift to myself, because this book really spoke to my my experiences in a way that I found to be really moving and profound. And I'm I'm just delighted to get a chance to share it with my listeners today. So I want to thank you, first of all, for writing this book. And I want to get into the fact that it is a book that is very personal. And so at certain times in this conversation, we're going to be dealing with some issues that have to do with family trauma and mental health. And so if listeners may uh, be triggered by some of those issues, I just want to give everybody a warning here at the top of the conversation. But I wonder if you would be willing to maybe give my listeners a little bit of an overview of how this book came to be, because it's different from the other books that you've written. You're not writing about a subject out there in the world. You're writing about something very interior. So talk to us about that process. Sure. So this book is hugely different from other things I've written, and it really came out of a series of essays that I wrote over a couple of years where I realized I was writing about mental illness and I was writing about trauma without realizing it. So that I had multiple essays that kind of circled around these ideas 
that I didn't have a really clear picture that I was like coming in from this from different ways until I started grouping them together. And then I was like, oh, like I'm really trying to work out these issues of what I experienced as a child. I'm really trying to like work out issues of what it's like to live with mental illness. And I'm also trying to work out issues of like how grief plays into all of these. And so instead of like sitting down and being like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a memoir about some of the worst experiences I had, which I don't think anyone does, by the way. I, I instead was like, there's something that I'm trying to do here, something that I'm trying to figure out that it might be helpful to other people who are trying to figure this out too. So the book is often about like, how do we tell these stories about ourselves, right? Like how do we think through our own stories of what we've survived and of survival and how might we tell these stories in a way that helps us instead of in a way that doesn't help us? And what I realized pretty quickly is that I had been telling a story about myself that was not helpful, that was not helpful to me at all, but it was very much the way... I had told this thing to myself and to other people over and over again. So this book was very much me reworking essay by essay that maybe the story is different than I thought it was and that it would be good for me to find a different way to narrate this than I had previously. Well, and for my listeners, it's not just one story that you were telling yourself, but it was almost a kind of layer upon layer of stories. So if I may, there was the story that you were getting from your family, but there was also the story that you were getting from graduate school and what a scholar was supposed to be. And maybe we could take a moment and kind of talk about some of those layers. Like, so what were some of the, the sandwiching of the stories that you were having to peel away here? Right. So our lives are very complicated and messy. We're dealing with expectations from different people at different times. And so what I realized is that all these stories kind of built on top of each other, right? And so much of my story was a story about trauma that I didn't want to recognize. So the first layer of this is the fact that I had a biological dad who was mentally and emotionally abusive, other family members in that family unit that also were you know, had pretty much convinced me that anything I experienced was my fault, right? Like there's something fundamentally wrong with me here. And that's what was going on, right? Not that they were abusive, that there's something wrong with me and that I was broken, right? Like fundamentally, just as a human being. And then what happens, of course, is that there are other things that I experienced, but I think that graduate school compounded some of that stuff, right? So already feeling like I wasn't good enough, already feeling like I was somehow a broken human being who couldn't like do things the way people were supposed to do. Graduate school did not improve that for me, right? Like it only exaggerated other issues that I had in there, right? So that while I previously had an undiagnosed anxiety disorder, graduate school ramped up the anxiety, right? Um, While I previously had undiagnosed PTSD, undiagnosed bipolar 2, these things also, their symptoms magnified with the kind of pressure cooker that is graduate school. So that I felt like more and more, like somehow something was going on and there was something wrong with me, right? Like other people seemed to handle it. They could perform. And I had this like interior monologue always going, right? That I was never going to be good enough. I was never going to be able to do this the way that other people did, despite whatever success I had across the board, right? Like that was just not part of the equation. It didn't register. And I think it made even worse by the idea that when you're in graduate school, right, your whole life is like the life of the mind, right? And that looks a certain way. And so what in the world was I supposed to do in this arena where the mind is the most important part when I felt like mine couldn't work, right? And so I think that all of those other issues got swirled together there because I was so 
convinced. Like, if my mind doesn't work the way that everyone else is supposed to, like, how can I succeed here, right? Like, how can I move forward from this point? And so you would get this, like, on top of one another, right? And then before we even get to, like, issues of people that you love dying, right? And how that rewrites your story and how you have to deal with this. Or one of the things that's also part of this book is like how all this pairs together with parenting and how as a parent, I was losing my mind because of all these things, right? Convinced that I was just somehow not going to get it right by my kids. Again, despite the fact that my kids are doing fine, right? Like it's so much a story of like what's happening on the inside And how different that is from all the other things around us that are also giving us signals, right? And I like to joke sometimes that like, while those of us that kind of seem to have it together, like often you don't realize like what a train wreck (laughs) it is inside, like, like what's going on inside our heads maybe doesn't match up with what people understand. And I think that's a crucial part of the story too, is to say like, actually, even folks that we think are successful or we think like have it all worked out, we can't know because of the way that mental illness works. We can't know about like the trauma that they've experienced that they're dealing with. We just don't have any idea about that, right? And how those two realities can exist side by side is also part of that too, right? Like that things might look one way on the outside, but when the inside doesn't match that or really actively like works against it, it's hard to figure that out. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. Longtime listeners will recall that we've spoken to her before on the show about her books, The Gospel According to the Klan and Sexism Ed. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Final Girl, and other essays on grief, trauma, and mental illness. Well, I want to continue with this for just a second because some of the the kind of ways that you phrase the stories that you inherited from these experiences and you, you talk about trauma, mental illness, grief, PTSD, eventually a diagnosis of bipolar disorder too. These have a couple of, I come from a media background, so we'd call them log lines, like the kind of things that you use to describe an episode of a television show. And so one log line from your family was, I realized that their job was to break me, not to protect me. Like that's one thing that you say about this, which is a, it's a harsh reality, but one that I know very well from my own family background as well. And then you also talk about graduate school and like, so the only thing that mattered was my brain. And as long as I could communicate or make it seem like my brain wasn't broken, they didn't care about the rest. Now I'm paraphrasing those two things, but those as starting points are pretty bleak starting points. And I want to say that this book for my listeners, it doesn't stay bleak. It's, I find it to be a very hopeful book, but maybe talk to us about what it was like to confront those, for want of a better word, those log lines about your family and your career and to begin to rework and unwork those in a different direction. Yeah. So I hope that the book is a hopeful book too, is what I will say, is that I'm definitely not dealing with the easy stuff in this book. And I usually try to warn readers that's the case, right? That this is some real hard stuff. And I think there's a way in which I could say, suddenly I decided that I wanted to be okay, right? So I was like, I'm going to get a diagnosis, I'm going to go to therapy, I'm going to be on meds. That's totally not what happened, right? What happened instead is that since I'm a writer and I figure out things by writing, What I discovered is I kept being pulled back into these memories and these ideas in a way that I couldn't get rid of, right? 
So that what I realized is that I was writing about my biological dad, writing about my biological dad. And people are like, oh, I read your essay about your dad. And I'm like, it wasn't about my dad. It's about this other guy. But it's totally about my dad, right? It's me trying to like tee apart those memories and figure out what's happening there. Were they just the things that I had packed way, way down, right? Kept bubbling to the surface because that's what's happened. I started having those moments, right? And I write about this in the book where just a moment where I would just be staggered by something, right? Like something would come to mind and then I would realize like, I hadn't thought of it in years, but it would completely like floor me, right? And the same thing happened about graduate school, where when I was in graduate school, I didn't think anything of like how like I had to push all this down just to move forward step by step. It was after I left graduate school that I was really shaken and realized that like maybe this is not the healthiest experience for me. And what I'll say is that even then, like even with those inklings, it took me forever to get a diagnosis, right? And, and part of this is the like, what happens if my mind is broken, right? Like what happens if my brain is broken? Um, which is a terrible way to think about it, right? Because that's not what's going on here, but it's very much the kind of narrative that was there, right? Either it worked. And so it took me a while to actually be okay and be like, you know what? This is something that I recognize that's appearing in my writing. I'm suffering through this right, in some sort of way, maybe I should get some help. Like before that, it was just me kind of like making my way as best as I could, right? Like there's no like, I wish there was like a moment where the light bulb came on and I was like, you know what, Kelly, get to therapy, girl. That was not what happened, right? Like it took a really long time for me to be like, okay, let me admit this to myself and admit what it will mean if I have to think through my life and these diagnoses, right? What will it mean if I have to think through the fact that I was a survivor of childhood abuse. Like what kind of stories? Again, right? Like it's completely about like, how am I going to re-narrate myself, right? Or who am I if I admit that this happened to me? And that's really hard work, right? Like it's super hard work. And I have a beloved therapist who has really put in the work and I am not a great therapy patient. Like I feel like I should say this right now. Like she really has to work with me. But there was actually really put in the work of being like, let's like reintegrate this and see what happens, what you can deal with, right? So that's the other piece I should say is that very much in the book, it's what could I deal with reflecting back on, right? And that's not everything for sure because some of it would just not help me or help readers or help anyone, right? To bring back into the conversation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. Longtime listeners will recall that we've spoken to her before about her books, The Gospel According to the Klan, and her book, Sexism Ed. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Final Girl, and other essays on grief, trauma, and mental illness. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. 
She's the Indie Award-winning author of Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia, and The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of the Zombie Apocalypse in American Culture. Longtime listeners will recall that we've spoken to her both about Sexism Ed and about her book, The Gospel According to the Klan. Today, we're talking about her recent book of essays, Final Girl, and other essays on grief, trauma, and mental illness. And as that title implies, we are going to be dealing in this conversation with some matters that will touch on trauma and family abuse. And so if that is a trigger for you, I just want to give you a warning here at the top of the segment. Well, we touched on this in the previous segment, but I want to come back to it because there was a moment in your book, Final Girl, that really struck me, and that was your effort, and I'm going to put emphasis on the word effort, to make the appointment to get that diagnosis that we've talked about. And your description of that both was consonant with my own experience of this, but also the experience of others who have shared with me their, their struggles with mental illness. And that is the system itself sometimes is set up to make it hard or to be a particular obstacle for the people who need the help specifically around the things that trigger them in the moments when they need that help. Like you have to go through this number of steps in order to get the appointment in the first place, or you're asked whether or not your experience of your emotions right now is really a crisis or is this something that can wait. I found that to be so profound and I was moved by it, but I wonder if you could share with my listeners a little bit about both experiencing that moment, but also coming back and writing that moment. Yeah. So what had happened is I was in a period of like major depression. Bad enough for me to know like, okay, I should probably do something about that. And so like you make that decision, it takes forever to make that decision or at least in my experience, it's often when like I've passed a point where I probably already should have intervened, right? Like where I'm at my lowest or I just, this is just going to be impossibly hard. And so I realized this and I, I tell this story in the book and we can talk about how I wrote it too, but I call my doctor and the first nurse I talked to was like, you can breathe, right? And I was like, yeah, I can, like I can breathe. And she's like, well, then it's not something the doctor can handle right now, right? Like, so unless it was like a crisis, then don't call us. And I can remember like how visceral that was, where I was just like, what are you, like, what are you saying to me? And um, luckily a dear friend of mine was like, no, this is not acceptable. She's like, this is a crisis. She's like, I understand how they've done this, but you're going to call back. And so called back, fought with the nurse, <laughs> finally got an appointment with my doctor who um, was a delightful human being and who realized very quickly, like, no, we need additional help, right? Like, so we need to get you to a psychiatrist to do this, right? And it was like, I could diagnose you, but she's like, this is not my wheelhouse. So I'm going to get you to the person that I want to get you to, right? And, and so I was like, this is easy, right? Like, so I had to fight the nurse through multiple phone calls, but my doctor takes me seriously. It took at least, seven or eight phone calls to the psychiatrist to actually get an appointment, right? And it was one of these things where I would call and no one would answer, or I would call and they would put my thing on a listening service, right? right? And so I could never like get you through until I finally got someone on the phone and was like, look, my doctor has sent you the order. You've got to do this. And then of course, it's one of those things where they're like, yeah, but we don't have any appointments for like a month, right? Like maybe we can call you if we have a cancellation. 
So it's just one of those things where like everything was like a hurry up and wait. And then it was like dealing with a gatekeeper who then had to actually discover that you were in crisis and then like pass you on to the next person, right? And it's not like I could go straight into a psychiatrist, right? So you have an evaluation with someone who is never going to see you again, right? Who then like just sits down with you and is like, check, check. This is what it is. I can maybe write you a prescription, but you're not going to be able to see the person you need to see until this time, right? So it's just this whole process was like, ongoing and just took forever. And then they're like, you also need therapy, but we have no therapist that can take you. Good luck, right? And so then you go to the internet and try to find a therapist who like takes your insurance if you're lucky enough to have insurance. So it just, it was one of these things where I'm not great on the phone anyway, which is an anxiety thing. So by the time I like landed in the therapist chair, I was just like, I, was this worth it? Like, did I like all this time and like, am I going to feel better? And that's not even accounting for how long it takes the medication to start working to handle these kinds of things, right? So it's just this long, drawn-out drama that I didn't recognize at first when I went through it. It was when I decided to, like, write it up that I was just like, how does anybody do that, right? Like, how does anybody have the time to, like, continue to follow up and continue to do this? Especially if you were like me, where you're the most depressed you'd ever been in your life. Like, how are you even supposed to do this kind of thing? And so partially it was me writing it up just to describe my experience, but partially it's also an indictment of how impossible it feels to actually get mental treatment for mental illness when you need it the most, right? Because it's not like I walked in there with like, you know what, I'm not feeling great, but like the thing, and it's like, no, 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 like, this is bad, right? Like, this is really bad. And I know it's really bad. And, but just the impossibility of it, right? And, and again, I'm so lucky enough to have insurance, but I didn't have insurance to cover the psychiatrist. So I get to pay that out, right? So it's like this very complicated system of who will take my insurance? Who is available? Who can I actually talk to, right? And it just, by the end of it, I was like, this is a lot of effort. Like, this better pay dividends, right? And then everyone tells you, like, oh, it's not going to be immediate. And I'm like, maybe it's not going to be immediate. Like, <laughs> I've done the gauntlet. Why is it so working instantly? And, which I now know is just me being me. But like, it was just a very funny thing where I'm like, I did all the work to get to this. Were you going to tell me I have to do more work? Like, come on. <laughs> well, and I want to pick up on that phrase you just used of you being you, because once you actually are sitting in that chair and you're actually working with a therapist, new narratives start to kick in. And you write about this like, OK, now I need to be the model patient and now my therapist yeah. is going to fix me. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. I think it's important for my listeners to hear about this, too. So talk to me about some yeah. of those narratives that start in once you are in treatment. <laughs> so, um it might not be a surprise to anyone that I am a bit of an overachiever. Like if graduate school and PhD didn't like suggest this to you. Um, so in therapy, I instantly was like, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to be the A plus patient, right? Like I'm going to do all the work. She's going to give me the gold star. I'm going to do more work. I'm going to get the gold star. And then at the end, right? Because I assumed it would be like, I don't know, like a trial period, like three or four months and I'd be fine, right? Yeah. So, you know, then I was like, I'll do this. And then like, we'll get to the end of it. And she'll be like, oh, Kelly, you were amazing. You did all the work, like A plus in my grade book, go forth in the world. These are no longer issues that you're ever going to have. Right. And this is very much how I approached from therapy and medication, right? Is that I could get an A, I could move on, I would be fixed and this would never be a problem again. Right. Like this is the, the very much the naivete that I brought into this. Like, cause of course that's what happens, right? Like, 
was like, not me. I'm not going to be on medicine the rest of my life. Not me. I'm not going to be the therapist for forever and ever. Like, clearly, like, I've outworked all kinds of things. I can do this. And you can't. This isn't the way it works, right? And one of the things I read about in the book is that, like, while things were going well, right, after therapy and medication and things seemed to be, like, turning a corner for me, I could tell myself, like, I was fixed. This is not a problem any day now. We're just going to be, like, going to be no longer once a week, no longer, like, once a week, no longer twice a month, no longer once a month. We're going to, like, I'm not going to have seen it for that much. I'm going to be able to do this. You know, and then things fall apart like they do right? Like that things just happen and horrible things happen really quickly and you have to deal with them. And I told my therapist once, I said, you know, what I'm really tired of is I'm tired of being broken. Like, I'm just tired of it. Like I'm exhausted with myself. I don't know how many people deal with me. I need you to fix it. <laughs> and um, she's very annoying sense, but it's one of the moments that she's very gentle. She said, why do you think there's anything that needs to be fixed? And I said, like, what? And she's like, why do you assume this? She's like, this is just the way you are. Like you get to learn to live with how you are, but there's not anything fundamentally broken about you. And I mean, I think I didn't laugh at her, but I think I had like this moment where I was just like, are you sure you're good at Like I just like funny moment where this woman is wonderfully talented and amazing. And routinely like tells me what's up. But I just had this moment where I was like, I don't think you're very good at your job because like, I can actually do this. And then come to believe, of course, she's entirely right. You know, this is, of course she is. She's a professional. She knows more than me, right? But I think it was like a formative moment where I was like, oh, maybe this is not the story I need to tell about myself anymore, right? And maybe this is doing more damage than the conglomeration of things that I'm trying to get through every day. And the honest answer is, of course, that it was, right? Like that understanding of myself was not helpful. It was actively harming me and how I was approaching these kinds of things. Now, I will say, I still do have these moments where I'm like, I do want that gold star because I've been working hard. <laughs> like, I've been the best patient ever, you know. Um, I less now, but every once in a while, I do have like where I'm like, you should tell me how great I'm doing, right? Um, which, you know, she does sometimes, but, you know, other times, like, I'm just struggling very like everyone else is, right? So it is, it is funny about how it took me a while to realize how continual this work is, right? That it's not like I'm ever going to get to a point where anxiety is not something I deal with. Like, that's just not going to happen. And I have to be okay with that, you know, in some kind of way. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Kelly J. Baker. She's been on the show before talking about her books, Sexism Ed and The Gospel According to the Klan. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Final Girl, and other essays on grief, trauma, and mental illness. So I want to pick up on this thread of you learning to be and to live with kind of who you are and how you're wired. And these are some of the things that really spoke to me most deeply in your book of essays, Final Girl. And let me kind of put it in this framing. So I have said to my friends and to my wife that the place that I probably feel most comfortable in the world and a place that I love is inside a haunted house. And my reason for that is because, and we, my wife and I had a long conversation about this one time when we were in a haunted corn maze and, I, and things were popping out from all different sides. And I was just laughing and having fun. And my wife experiences me most of the time as being a very high strung, nervous and easily startled individual. And she's like, what's going on? Why are you so happy here? I'm like, this is the one place where they can't hurt me. 
This is the one place where there are rules. And if somebody actually came in and hurt me, they would shut this place down in a minute. So uh, the rules of a haunted house are well known to me. And I felt much safer growing up in haunted houses than I did in my own house. And you also have talked both on social media and in your book, Final Girl, about how much things like Halloween and the rules of horror movies all kind of speak to you. And even you get your title of the book, Final Girl, from the kind of rules of horror movies. And I wonder if that may be a place to get into this part of the conversation. Explain to my listeners what a final girl is. Yeah. Um, so I do say this in the book that I'm a bit of a horror junkie. And a final girl is a very kind of traditional trope in horror where there is usually some young woman left at the end standing, right? Everyone else has died. They've met some sort of gruesome effort. And so you have this like one blood splattered girl right who survived it and everybody's like oh the movie's over it's great and and for me it was one of those things where i'm like maybe it's not great to be the one that survives all this right and so very much that essay is about what it means to be a final girl like what it means to survive this stuff because we hardly ever pick up with her after right like the celebration at the end of horror is that she made it right and we never get to see her like working through the trauma and therapy or the kind of medication or the nightmares, right? Or the PTSD or or any of these pieces of it, right? Like you said, like with you with haunted houses, for me, like horror just made sense, right? Like, you know how the monster works, right? And that it's like time boxed, right? Like this long in this movie and that probably people are going to die, right? Like you understand that, right? And And there might be some people that survive, but also there's this kind of like cosmic justice piece of it too, right? And that there are innocent people that die in this, but often the people that are really bad, and I am not a good enough person to say that <laughs> there are people that I experienced with abuse for where I was like, no, poor movie ending might be okay here, right? And just to understand that there was something there that was nice and tidy and comfortable, right? So I could read a Stephen King novel and know what was going to happen, right? I could watch the slasher movie and know what's going to happen. And partially it's because I can identify with that person that was left standing, right? Where I was like, I know it, like, you've been through it, I've been through it, like, I get it. It sucks, right? But we've still kind of made it through, right? Um, which I think it's a part of the kind of hopefulness that happens in some form, right? Is that there is someone that can kind of navigate this somehow and it's still left standing. But of course, then it negates all the effects that I said previously, right? Like we don't follow up with the final girl generally, unless it's something like the Scream franchise that's followed Sydney, right, through various incarnations where you do see like trauma. But generally, that's not what happens here, right? Um, and real life is messier <laughs> too, right? Um, that there's something for me very useful about these stories that I can understand the roles of and that the rules aren't shifting and the environment's not shifting, right? And I write about this in the book too, about like, what do we do when home is not safe, right? And and that was like the hardest thing, I think, for me to like grapple with here is that homes were supposed to be safe. They weren't supposed to look like mine, right? And just recognizing that, like, as I got older, I was like, oh no, like, this is messed up, right? Where when you're in it, like, you can't do that, especially when you're a child and you're trying to like, figure out how to navigate these things and how unpredictable they are, which is why I like the predictability of horror movies and TV shows and, and novels, because I was like, oh, no, it's going to happen next, right? Like, I'm prepared for it. Whereas in real life, 
you were just not prepared for it, right? Like there's no preparation you could do in some kind of way. Well, and th- this now, I think, thank you so much for that answer. And so the structure of horror, the structure of the haunted house, the knowing that there are rules there is a kind of comfort. But what I really like about that answer is in some ways, because you've talked about like Sydney and the Halloween franchise and others like, you know, we don't oftentimes get a chance to see the final girl dealing with the trauma. It strikes me that's exactly what this book of essays is. It's the final girl after she's the last one standing doing the reconstructive work. Now, so when I say that, I, I hear you saying right and I see you nodding. So so, so you are giving us something that extends the structure. It doesn't negate the structure. It takes the structure for granted. But now it's showing us what happens after the last roll of film comes out of the camera. Right. Yeah. And, and I write about this very particularly in a couple essays where I write about how I resonate with some fictional characters, right? And and like some of those things where it's like they feel familiar to me. And then what I hope for them is maybe something that's happened with me, right? Like I hope that they end up with better lives than what it seems that they're leading towards, right? Um, and it took me a little while, not super long, but to realize like that you can get past the stuff, like it never goes away, but you can get past the stuff in a certain way that you can like build a life that works for you, right? You know, I, I say when I say the monster always comes back again. And I think that's very much the way it is with trauma, like that it just, it's going to pop back and get you in certain things. Now that might be alleviated as time goes by, but it's never, like, it's just never gone, right? It's the same way with loss, right? It's not like we can be like, oh, we've got closure. <laughs> we've moved on. Like that's just, it's not the way it works. But I do think that there's something refreshing about that book that it's not me saying like none of this is possible right and that what you're reading is a broken story of a broken child and then broken woman instead it's very much a me thing saying like this is a journey to survival like i don't know that it's replicable but i know that it's possible like this is actually something that can happen and i want people who are reading it right to be able to see that right like that it all worked out because i mean it's still real messy, but like I have been able to do stuff that's helpful to me and it's gotten me to a better space than I was when I started. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And this may be a good time for us to take a quick break. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. Longtime listeners will recall that we've had her on the show before talking about her book, Sexism, Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia, and her book, The Gospel According to the Klan. She's an Indie Award-winning author of many books, including The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of the Zombie Apocalypse in American Culture. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Final Girl, and other essays essays on grief, trauma, and mental illness. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's the Indie Award-winning author of Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia. Listeners will recall that we spoke to her about that book and also her book, The Gospel According to the Klan, on previous episodes. She's also the author of The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of the Zombie Apocalypse in American Culture, 
and many other books. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Rumpus, The Washington Post, and more. Today we're talking about her recent book, Final Girl, and other essays on grief, trauma, and mental illness. And just another heads up to listeners that we are dealing with subjects that touch on trauma and family abuse and violence. And if that is in any way triggering for you, please be advised. In our conversation so far, we've been talking about stories and we've been talking about family and we've been talking about the kind of experiences that lead to post-traumatic stress and also to grief. And I think one of the things that rings out to me so poignantly in your book, Final Girl, is it's not easy to separate the heroes and the monsters in our families. And that when we talk about, for example, your family, or when I think about my family, I can think about people who are very closely allied together in the family structure, some of whom were my advocates and some of whom were my adversaries. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that as you've been writing and thinking about that history. What was it like to look back and begin to tease out and think about those very complex relationships of threat and protection in your own past? Yeah, um, it's really tough. You know, it's it's one of those things where my paternal grandmother, who was very much an enabler of my dad, was also one of my strongest advocates when she wanted to be, right? So supportive until she wasn't, right? Which is hard to deal with when you're a kid on my side until she wasn't, and then enabling this, this very abusive environment. And when she died, I had this moment where I was just like, do I love her? Do I hate her? Like, how, like, how do I even begin to do this? Because I think it would have been like, what day did you strike me about this, right? Like, you know, I haven't talked to this part of my family in years and years now. Um, gosh, almost 14 years, I think. And it was just one of those things where she died and I was like, this is a woman who I loved deeply at one point in my life, right? I loved her deeply. And I even wanted to be like her because she was just this kind of amazing person, except for when she wasn't, right? And so it's just this kind of like this really interesting piece here, right? And then there were, you know, lesser relationships too, where it was people that were on my side until they were on my user's side, right? Who weren't actively involved, right? This happened in some sort of way. And so it was really hard for me to deal with this, except to come to this sort of space where I could say like, there are some memories that are good, but for me, thinking about it back as an adult, right? Where this is so confusing as a child, but thinking as it back as an adult, it's the bad often outweighed that good, right? Like those moments of support completely were overturned by these like terrible moments where people just really wanted to break me down, right? And make me do what they wanted me to do. And so I didn't have a good way to handle it, right? Like it's stuff that you feel that's all tangled and complicated. And so trying to write it out to say like, this is an essay about this person. And then to get to the end of it and be like, I don't entirely know, right? Like, like even at the end, when I reflect on all of these things and I talk about some of these, the most terrible experiences I had with this person, like, how am I supposed to feel, right? Like, and realizing that maybe how I'm supposed to feel is the wrong question, right? Like, maybe the better question is how do I feel? And how I feel is really conflicted and I don't know, like, what to do in some sort of way. And I think that often happens to kids that have been in these, like, traumatic, abusive environments is that, especially when it's parents, right? Like it's so hard because it's the person that's supposed to love you no matter what. 
and that doesn't happen, right? And then like trying to figure out what that means as you like get older or try to understand. It's one of those things where I often would tell folks that like, I didn't realize I was in an abusive environment until someone said to me like, whoa, like this, like I tell them it's funny stories and they're like, none of thing about this is funny. And I'm like, are you sure? Like, it's kind of funny. And they're like, no, like shut it down. None of this is funny. None of this is good. You know, glad that you've survived through humor, but like, whoa, right? And and I just think it that makes it even harder, right? Because of the kind of like desire we have for our parents to love us and the way that they're supposed to love us. And then what happens when that relationship is broken or toxic is just like the ramifications are there forever and ever as you kind of deal with them. And so, yeah, it's, I think it's still really hard for me to kind of like parse it, you know, because there's some moments that I really miss these people. And then there are some moments that I think like, I couldn't have survived and still had them in my life, right? And that's hard to weigh. And those are hard decisions to make. And yeah, folks that are going through it, like understand, like you just, it's hard to figure out what's best for you and then when you've dealt with these kinds of environments for so long, right? Where no one cares about what's best for you one way or another. As I'm listening to your answer, uh, two quotes are going through my head. And one is Mr. Rogers, and I'm going to paraphrase it. Mr. Rogers basically saying what I really wanted to do was to help children to understand that if they had big feelings, if they could name them, then those feelings wouldn't control them, that getting it out there and naming it is important. And then another that goes through my head is from the writer Anne Lamott, and I think it's from her book Bird by Bird about writing, where she basically says, If folks wanted you to write better about them, they should have treated you better. And so as I'm saying those two things, I'm using it as a kind of foundation for a question where I ask, your entire vocation is getting words into the world. And so this was a process, it seems to me, in your book, Final Girl, of learning to name these things in ways where they can't control you anymore. And you had to, following the advice of Anne Lamott or maybe some advice from somebody else, learn to not care so much about the consequences. Now, these are my words, not yours. As I, yeah. as I lay this out, am I on to something or would you say it in a different way? No, I think there is something remarkably liberatory for me in this memoir in that I got to call it like it was, right? So it wasn't someone else's story about me. It wasn't me listening to abusers anymore, except to use them to figure out how to retell my story. But it was very much me claiming that, right? And claiming diagnoses and understanding that like that knowledge doesn't change me. It just identifies where I am and who I am, right? So that there's no shame in those diagnoses, right? Like that there are people that want to do that, but to just realize like, no, this is actually really helpful for me to be able to name these feelings that I've had for so long, right? Or these symptoms that attach to this that now I can actually name what they are. And that's actually very empowering to me, right? To be able to identify that instead of to be like, I don't know what's happening. So I think that being able to do that and being able to name those big emotions and to deal with them matter-of-factly like I do in this was very helpful. And I do love the Anne Lamont quote. And I think about it often, right? Which is, if you're terrible people, you can't be surprised when someone writes about how terrible you are. Now, I did have to think about this a lot. So this is something that I really thought about as I was putting the book together, which is like, how much did I want to talk about other people? How much did I want to talk about what specifically happened, right? Like how much did I want to dwell in the terribleness? And 
one of the things that happened in that book means a lot of the really terrible stuff stays off page, right? Like it's not like it's front and center, right? Like it's an off-scene kind of thing. There are moments where I really focus in, but a lot of times it's just a more general, like set the stage. And so you can have an idea of this. Because I didn't want it to be like one of these things where it's like, let's go all in on her trauma. Partially because that would be terrible for my mental health, but partially because that's not really what the story is about, right? Like it's about the after effects of trauma. And so I had to really think about like, do I let these people off the hook, right? And I don't think I do, you know? Like I talk about how complicated it is, but I don't let them off the hook. The other piece of that is I don't let myself off the hook in this book, right? So that one of the things I discovered is that I would have these moments in essays where I'm like, I could look better or I could be honest, right? Like, so these are my options is that I could actually look better than I am, right? Or I could be really honest about where I was in this moment. And what I discovered is I got stuck in essays where I was like, maybe I'm just not a very good person, right? Because we don't always act in our best, right? When we have these really messy, chaotic moments where we're really struggling. And so I just decided to be honest about that, right? To say like, when I acted terribly, I'm going to show you too, right? Like just to be this way. And that's terrifying, right? To be like, somebody's going to pick this up and be like, wow, Kelly, okay, right? And, and so that was what worked on me the most, I think, is just being like, we're going to pick this up and be like, wow, like she's a hot mess, right? Like, ooh, I didn't know. Um, and sure, right, legit. <laughs> so I just think there needs to be that kind of level of honesty there about like, if we're going to talk about other people's flaws, then we need to be willing to talk about our own too. And to be really honest that most of us are going to mess up all the time. And sometimes it's really not going to be pretty. And that also is part of our story and our journey is that learning and that moving forward, hopefully, after those kinds of things happen. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. We've talked to her on the show before about her book, Sexism Ed, and her book, The Gospel According to the Klan. Today, we're discussing her recent book, Final Girl and Other Essays on Grief, Trauma, and Mental Illness. Well, picking up on what you were just saying about how this appears, I was struck in the middle of the book, there's one chapter, and I should say, or one essay, I should say to listeners that most of your essays are between like about six to 15 pages, but there's one right smack dab in the middle of your book, chapter 16, called Therapy, and I'm going to quote it in full. I went to therapy on my birthday because I'm trying, I am trying to save my life. And it's just, that's just there on the page. And the rest of it is what we would call white space. And so talk about a focus, talk about showing something in very stark relief. What was it like to get that bare boned and to allow yourself to keep that in the manuscript? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was one of those where um, I wrote that not long after that therapy session, right? So I write in journals, I write on the computer, right? So I have stuff. And it was just one of those where I wrote it down and was like, you know, this is maybe a thought for my journal or something. Like, maybe I'll come back to you. Maybe I wouldn't. But as I was pulling essays together, I found that one again and was like, like, this is an essay, right? In itself, right? These, like, just few lines are an essay that say more about where my mental health was at that moment than thousands of words could, right? Like just 
to do that. And so I put it in the manuscript and then I pulled it out. <laughs> I put it in the manuscript and I pulled it out. And um, I finally have a writing buddy who I was like, okay, look, like, do I keep this in or do I not? And he's like, you have to, right? Like this is an anchor point, right? About like what this journey looks like. And he's like, and sometimes it's just not all the discussion, right? He's like, sometimes it's just like, this is what I have to do, right? If I'm going to make it to my next birthday, right? Um, and I think that level of honesty was one of the, like, those are, that's one of the hard essays to include, right? It's to be like, to be really honest about what it looked like for me in that moment. And it was also one of those things when I told my partner, I was like, you know, if you sit down and will like want to read this all the way through, like I have suggestions of essays that you would skip, like just like bounce right over him, like just like keep flipping, you know, um, because he's talked to me like throughout this and like knows where I am. But I think there's something about seeing that starkness on the page, like you said, right? Where you're just like, oh, wow, like this is much more serious than maybe she had said previously, right? And so I'm glad it's in there. And I'm glad the one that follows it is in there too, right? But just to say like, no, like this is real. And when we talk about something like survival, it's often not in the abstract, right? Like it's not something we're thinking about. Like it, it actually is something very direct and has direct consequences, right? That we maybe should pay a little more attention to. Now you've alluded to this in our conversation and you and I follow each other on social media. And so I know that you have also spoken about this on social media at several points. A writer normally has anxiety about getting their words out into the world. But in this particular case, it really seems like this particular book is both necessary for the reasons that we've talked about so far in the hour, but also it's the piece that is the most bare wound. It's the most open. It's the most vulnerable. And what is it like to have it in the world? And what is it like to have people like me come and want to talk to you about it and to go into these things in detail? What's it like to be to have this particular book read, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so one of the things I tell people is that like, this is the book that I almost like pulled I don't even know how many times, right? Like I get it to a certain point and then I was like, I can't, like, I can't do this, right? Like this can't be in the world. I can't have people read this. Like, I just, I can't do it. And luckily I have like excellent people around me who are super supportive and they're like, no, like, I feel like this is worthwhile, right? In some sort of way. But it was remarkably, like it was nerve wracking to write the thing. It was nerve wracking to turn the thing into the press. It was nerve wracking to get it back from the press. Like as we worked through getting it ready for publication. It was nerve-wracking when I knew it was going to be published. And I had this moment where I was just like, maybe on publication day, I'll just hide. Like, legit, just like, hide, right? Like, no one can find me. I'll find a cave. Like, it's cool, right? Like, read it if you want to read it. But, like, maybe, like, don't include me in this in some sort of way. And then it was out in the world. And I was like, oh, no. Like, people are going to read this. And they're going to, what if they don't like me, right? Uh, which is anxiety, me sort of thing. Um, and, and recognizing that it's okay, right? People don't have to like me. I don't have to be likable. That's not what this project is about in some way, shape, or form. But like hearing from people who read it and find it useful, or I've gotten all kinds of emails and messages from people that are like, we didn't experience the same thing, but like this really resonated, right? Or this essay resonated, or we made it together, 
which just makes me want to like sob for where we are, but also, you know, nice to have those connection points with folks too. And so, yeah, it's really interesting because it, it is one of those things where people are like, oh, I picked up any of my other books. And I'm like, yay, cool. I'm like, I'm a bummer because I write about racism um, <laughs> or sexism. But they pick up this book and I'm like, cool, man. Cool. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's just like very much me trying to be cool with it while also like losing it a little bit that someone is reading it. So so yeah, it is, it's kind of wild that it's out there. And it's even more wild because I have relatives that are like, oh, I'm reading it. And I'm like, stop, please. Like, hold, no. Like, if you want to talk about it, cool, not with me, right? Like, like there's this level of like separation, right? So strangers reading that, I'm much more comfortable with than, you know, like my teenagers, like, when can I read this book? And I'm like, never, <laughs> you can never read this book. <laughs> Which means as soon as she can, she probably will, right? But I was just like, no, you cannot <laughs> Well, Dr. Kelly J. Baker, I have to say, I am so glad that I read your book, Final Girl. Like I said at the beginning of the show, it's a book that I read slowly because I wanted to sit with the movements that it went through and I wanted to sit with your story. It made me also sit with my own story in ways that I needed. And I'm I'm hearing you when you're telling me the trials that you went through to get this book into the world, that you wanted to pull it at several points and you had a lot of doubts about it. I just want to say, as a reader of many of your books, I am so glad that this book exists. I'm so glad that you went through what you went through to write it, not what you went through in terms of your experiences, but to get it on the page, I'm so grateful for that. And I'm especially grateful that you took time today to talk to us about it. Well, I appreciate you reading and I appreciate your kind words and I'm so glad to have talked to you about it today. We've been speaking with Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She's the Indie Award-winning author of Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia, as well as The Gospel According to the Ku Klux Klan. We have talked about both of those books here on our show, Things Not Seen. We're talking today about her recent book, Final Girl, and other essays on grief, trauma, and mental illness. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.